The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thanks for joining me. I hope everybody is safe, healthy, and if uh, you have an issue going on with what we've been dealing with, which I don't even want to say the name, um, I hope you're taking the proper and appropriate steps to get the treatment and help you need. Um, also, I hope you're monitoring and and taking very, very seri- seriously this uh, social distancing and the self-quarantine stuff. It's really kind of important. We're seeing um, the spread of this pandemic in a lot of cases because people are ignoring it or taking it lightly. So I hope you're not. I hope you're being smart, um, protecting your family and your loved ones and doing what you need to do to be healthy and safe. But anyway, tonight we're going to be talking about doomsday cults. We're really excited to have our guest tonight. Uh, Alan Warren is an author. He's written a book called Doomsday Cults, The Devil's Hostages. And he is um, he's written a, b- a bunch of true crime stuff and many, many uh, books on the topics that we're going to talk about tonight. But what is it about people like Charles Manson or Jim Jones or David Koresh or, or some of these other people that uh, gain the this group of followers that will do basically anything they tell them to? In some cases, they go to strangers' homes and commit uh, unspeakable acts of murder. In other cases, they'll uh, literally drink the Kool-Aid and commit mass suicide, almost a thousand people. So what is it about these leaders and these cults that, first of all, attract people, and second of all, make them do things that they wouldn't most likely do in the normal course of their lives? So Alan Warren will be our guest tonight, and we'll be talking about that. Yeah, I know, I need a haircut. Everybody's, I I told you, I had a little bit of beer on Friday night, and this is what happens. I did just see that... Um, we've now been uh, extended to this social distancing and basically home lockdown for the entire month of April. I, I know it's I know it's a bit petty to even talk about it, but I'm, I, I can't imagine not being able to do anything for another thirty days. It's just bizarre, but we've got to do it, right? We've got to stop this thing. Anyway, let's go to uh, let's go to break and, and get our guest on with us. Alan Warren again will be our guest tonight, and he'll be talking about doomsday cults. He's written about the topic in a new book, and we have a terrific show ahead for you. And we're looking forward to getting it started. It's beyond reality. Please support the program. Go to Patreon.com/slash Johaw. That's J O H A W. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Looking forward to kicking off the week with... Our guest tonight, Alan Warren, is joining us. Alan has written a book called Doomsday Cults, The Devil's Hostages. He's also the writer of many uh, true crime books and uh, has had his hand in this for a while. Alan, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you with us tonight. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. How did, how did you get involved with this? It seems to me almost anywhere you look now, 
turn on Netflix, Amazon Prime, whatever it happens to be, maybe even uh, cable television, and you see true crime stuff, and people are fascinated by this. How did you get your uh, interest in it? Mine's a long time going. I mean, when I was a young kid, like five and six, I used to uh, listen to radio all the time. And back then, I listened to things like The Shadow and uh, The Whistler and all that. So it was always, so I was kind of a radio mystery crime kid, as it was, and, and it just grew into it. It's not difficult to find an interest in this. I'm not exactly sure what part of us finds this stuff fascinating, but almost all of us do. Is there something in human nature that makes us just want to know more about people that do bad things? Uh, there's probably that. There's also the the um, ability for ourselves. Like, you know, I think each one of us has a lot of the characteristics that we find in, in killers and people that cause, you know, crime. And so I think what happens is sometimes we want to see where we fit in. And fitting in is a, is a broad term, and some people feel they fit in um, maybe at the complete opposite of the spectrum, and then some people find some type of appeal in belonging to something that may have a purpose, may not have a purpose, but to them it has a purpose, and they don't look at the maybe don't look at the bigger picture or maybe what that purpose does to other people. It's kind of a, it becomes a blind allegiance at some point. Oh, yeah. Like uh, a lot of times people uh, are looking for some sort of peace, right? They're looking for some sort of, uh, um, I don't know, some sort of structure in their life. And a lot of times uh, people have problems with uh, whatever's going on in the world. And so they look for comfort. And uh, along comes uh, religion or religious groups. And you see in a lot of the, the mainstream major religions right now, um, a lot of the a lot of the younger uh, people in society have kind of uh, turned away from it. They don't necessarily believe in it, and what they do is they look for something else, something uh, that they're closer to. And I think that's why all these uh, cults or new religious movements sort of uh, are attractive. We have uh, there are a lot of things that show up in the news that pique our interest as it relates to crime, as it relates to cults, as it relates to just people doing things that you know they wouldn't normally do in in, in what we would consider to be a socially normal life. But that's not what we're talking about here. And let's start at the beginning. Uh, your book is called Doomsday Cults: The Devil's Devil's Hostages. Define for us, if you will, what a doomsday cult is. Well, in general, this is a first of a series of books I'm doing on on cults in general, and doomsday cults themselves tend to have um, some sort of uh, charismatic leader, and what they're doing is they're uh, they're telling their their followers that uh, you know the apocalypse is now, the end of the world is happening now, and they generally try to get their followers to believe that they're part of an army, and an army that's going to pick up the world after it falls apart and lead it for God. It's gonna, they're, they're going to do the, the regrowth of, of human race, so to speak. So most doomsday cults come from that. So there's a, uh, there's a end of an apocalyptic component, um, and then there's a rebirth component to it? Yes, almost in, in almost all of them there is of some sort, and, and I've included, uh, of course, most of the main main religions, but there's also the 
component of people that do not believe in anything Abrahamic. So they're not Christians or Jews or Islam. They're they're uh, more into the vampire uh, soul sort of spiritual world, I guess you'd call it. When we look at the idea of a doomsday cult, have these things existed throughout human history, or are they a relatively new creation? Well, I think they've always existed. Um, Well, since, (laughs) I should clarify that, for, let's say, the last couple of hundred years, before that, I don't know, you know, when you've got a whole different world landscape back uh, before a couple hundred years ago, and also the way people lived and, and how they communicated. And it, it's sort of a different way of being a doomsday cult, but there were some. Um, but they really started to spring up probably 1800s, early 1900s would be the first kind of real have-hold sort of doomsday, this is it. Are there certain uh, political or societal uh, factors that have to be in place for these things to uh, gain some kind of traction, or can they just can they just appear out of nowhere at any time? Well, it's funny you say that. I think that um, it's unique to the political atmosphere at the time, but the cult in itself is still the same. And and I and I and I mean that in the sense of if you look in the '60s, um, most of the people that were let's say left, you know, more liberal, were into the you know the summer of love in '67 and the peace and all that stuff. So uh, most of the people that were attracted to cults were in that side, and were definitely left side. You know, like you had uh, Charles Manson and you had Anton Lavey, Church of Satan. You had all these factions opening up, and they were attracting people that were on the liberal point of view, whereas uh, when you get later into even the 80s and some of the current cults now, you're talking that they tend to be more conservative and more on the right side, and and that, that, it, that so it, may, it plays into it, but um, maybe I should say what, play, what, it, what it does is it, it uh, grabs most of the people that are not or they feel like they're not in power. When we talk about um, left side, right side, you know, when you talk about a political philosophy, uh, does that political philosophy guide the cult, or is it kind of just a side factor that you, you know, you look at as someone who studies these cults? Well, it it, it kind of guides them in a sense. You see, because right now, for instance, some of the current cults tend to be more, um, I say they're right, and only Mm -hmm. on the right side are conservative, because that's who they're attracting, and that's who they're looking for. And so the the religious right tends to have an influence on how they do their their recruiting. So, you know, they're, they're looking for a particular type of person. And and they tend to fit more of, see, right now there's a lot of conspiracies, and a lot of conspiratorial on the right side tend to fall into the religious movements. So there's a connection between conspiracies and cults at this time, but it always, ha- it always hasn't been.
And we're going to talk about some of the more, more notorious cults that we have experienced over the course of the last 40, 50 years. Maybe actually it's even longer than that now. Um, Charles Manson, obviously, Jim Jones. But you're referencing um, some activity that's going on today. And are these things, are these cults, maybe people that we might also call preppers or, or, or some of that stuff? Well, there's some of that in a way, you see, because in, in the current times, in the last five years especially, um, we, we see a lot of, um, like what you say, preppers, um, and, and it's, they're, they're, more, they're not as religious movement-based as they are um, doomsday. And definitely the, um, the politics plays into it. You know, they, again, you know, people feel out of control. They feel like their government's not there for them, and they or they feel like they're being used, and uh, something they're going to do something bad to them, and so th- their response is is with their own movement, like prepping or setting up against uh, bio warfare or whatever. And again, conspiracies come into it. People form formulate groups and. Uh, um, I don't know. You see, it's kind of a, it it plays off of each other. How large can or small uh, can a cult be to define it as a cult, particularly a doomsday cult? And the other part of this question is, can something like what we saw happening in Nazi Germany, can the Nazi movement have been a cult? Oh, for sure. Uh, You know, politics becomes a cult. Like, we are... um, just as when you say the Nazis and, and Mussolini was, was very cult of personality, they, they become a cult. You know, Donald Trump is sort of emphasizing as well, like there's, there's sort of a, a movement, even Bernie Sanders to an extent. So politics becomes a cult because it's people, you got to remember, there's a lot of, um, what do you, there's a lot of people that are feeling very insecure. Right. And and this time, just like they did back in the Nazi times, and when you know, and there's different times in our history where there's so much insecurity and and nobody to turn to, or they feel there's nobody to turn to. So as soon as someone comes up, and 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 gives them the rally, they jump into it because they feel like they're going, and and people get swept up into it. So religion, you know, uh, politics and religion are really kind of crossing that way, you know, because really all it is is you've got people that are believing in a philosophy no matter what, and they're going to they're going to go step by step with that philosophy no matter how silly it sounds. So I get my, my next question was going to be uh, something that you may have just answered for me, but I want to ask it anyway. Uh, if we talk about an, an organized political party or we talk about an organized religion, how do they, the people that follow either of those two things, or maybe even both in some cases, differ from those who might follow a cult? Is there any difference, or is it just a there, blind there allegiance? There's, there's very little difference. I think it's what it is, is you see, um, you have to say, well, how do we define a cult? Like a lot of people, when you say cult, they, they think of it as something bad. You know, right, right. initially, mo- most people, that's terrible, cult. Right. 
bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but if you put cult on something like uh, like like Steve Hassan did with his book about the cult of Trump, then you have all the backlash and say, well, that's not a cult, you know, it's because you're putting something bad in front of another name. But all it really is is an assembly, a group of people. I mean, when I started writing this book, uh, one of the big things I, I that was stuck in my mind was Charles Manson. And um, this is the backlash I get for this book, and because I'm comparing Jesus Christ to Charles Manson, and, and not as in a negative. What I'm saying is if you had someone like Jesus Christ today, if you had someone that fit that look, the, the praised love, and, and all the things that he apparently did a long time ago, how would our society treat someone like that now? Like, how would you treat someone that's healing people, right. someone that's uh, God's son? Like, if he said all the things that you hear in different cults now, you would think cult. So, uh, but it's not my intention to put down Christianity. That's not what it's about. What I'm saying is how does society in itself relate to a group, a religious group, and when does it that they decide it's a cult, you know. So, so, so that's the cult has become a very um, a dirty word, uh, so to speak, because people people associate it with anything that they disagree with. Yeah, I mean, because we only tend to hear, you know, the headlines are made by those um, groups, cults that do things that are just um, difficult to believe. You know, Charles Manson is a perfect example. Jim Jones is another perfect example. Those are headlines, and not only the headlines of the day, but then they live on through documentaries and people that revisit them constantly. So those are the cults that we hear about. What are some other, what we would consider to be cults, not, not, let's not talk about politics or religion right now, but other groups that may coexist peacefully that we could point to that say, hey, see, they're not all necessarily going to commit mass suicide or murder. Well, you see, when you get out of doomsday, you start getting into self-help calls, you know, and, and uh, it, just because, it, like, um, again, we associate the word cult as bad. Right. But if it, what, if, what if it's a, a cult that does good? a cult that's not killing people. It's almost like a sociopath or a psychopath. What if you have one of those that doesn't kill? Does that mean they're, they're okay? So, so the end result and how they're acting or performing at the time when you see them uh, doesn't necessarily represent what they are. So again, we, just, we like to put them into these cute little things and say, oh, it's a cult. It's no good. Uh, I mean, and really, how, how, how different is... Um, something like Bikram, Bikram's yoga. Look at how much that turned into a, a, a cult, or the the people that died in that in that hot tent, you know, the self help guru and stuff like. So there, there's there's or the family, the family praises love and the whole thing, but bad things still come out of them. Did we lose our guest? 
I don't know. I'm here. Oh, there you are. You, you cut out for a second. <laughs> oh, wow. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, the, the funny thing is, is that we've been having a lot of uh, data issues. You know, I guess this 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 uh, what's going on in, in the country and around the world is sucking up uh, some Internet usage and bandwidth that might not normally be uh, used. And therefore, it's stressing some systems. But either way, you're there. That's good. Um, we're going to go to break in just a minute. But before we do, Alan, you've got a lot of books. We're talking specifically tonight about Doomsday Cults, The Devil's Hostages. Um, but you've written a bunch of stuff. Can you just walk us through a couple of uh, what? you would say are your more recommended works i'm sure they're like children it's hard to pick a few however um for our listeners who might be new to your work in addition to doomsday cults what type of um what type of your work would you recommend they start with oh geez you know it depends on the type of reader but uh beyond suspicion which is about uh colonel russell williams who uh was the highest ranking uh canadian officer and been through the top security and while he was he was in charge of um, transportation of anybody that was of royalty or government from other countries throughout the country, and so he so he was very high up. Meanwhile, uh, while he, what he was doing was breaking into people's houses and and uh, putting on the uh, woman of the house's clothes and uh, taking pictures and uh, with him wearing the clothes. And uh, it just gets really bizarre wow. because after 80-some 80, 80 break-ins, he starts to uh, tie up, go there with the woman they were there, and tie them up. Oh, wow. And beat them. And not, not kill them. And not even rape them. <laughs> but it does end, end up in murder. So that's probably, that's still one of my most popular books. And it, I think it's pretty well written. And, uh, and, of course, The Killing Game, which is about Rodney Alcala out in LA going around killing people. He was he was on the he was on the uh dating game show and he actually won the date for the night. Wow. And um she said he was so creepy she wouldn't go to the hotel and the uh the dinner with him, even though he won. And so uh at that same time he had two dead bodies in his trunk. Oh wow. <laughs> so he is a character. You know, you so know. you know, I, I but, but the books. Don't get me wrong. There, there is the basic idea. I do, I do write about the facts, what happens, and everything. But I want people to understand that each one of these that I've chose to write over the years has something to do with the justice system and how it handled that case. So there's, there's always a twist in each one of them. And I just want people to understand, uh, I'm not really writing about the gore. Uh, there's plenty of those books. I'm really writing about w- the effect it has on everybody around them and and what we do as a justice system. Like Rodney O'Kell has been to trial three times on the same five murder charges because he keeps getting sentenced to death on all of them, gets an automatic appeal, and because California won't kill the people, they 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 re- <laughs> they always overturned the conviction. Oh, so the families, all the way from 68 up to now, even the six-year-old girl, the first one he attacked, she's still alive, and she has to come to trial. Oh. And, he, and he defends himself, so he gets to put on a voice and question her as if he's an attorney. Wow. He's questioning the people he assaulted, and our system keeps paying for it because he has no money. So that that's sort of that my point in that book and the point of all of them. There's always some twist like that. And that's what makes me go for those type of books, because I want 
I want people to really understand what goes on. Was was the start of this for you in writing about uh, stories like that? I don't mean stories in a fictional sense, but uh, telling those stories. Uh, when you started writing for True Case Files magazine, is that how it started? Yeah, that was the first first one first job I took. Um, I think I think the biggest thing is uh, some uh, the people that know me know that um, I started late in my life because I was autistic. I still am. <laughs> and and so I came out really late. I wasn't able to write properly and express myself to other people. It took a lot of years and a lot of work, but I made it. So uh, the reason I say that, so I started slow by doing like articles for two crime case files or, or I did Serial Killer magazine and I did all sorts of little quick articles. And then I started doing small series of books, part of a bigger you know, like a, a whole 26-book series, and I would do four of them, for instance. And so that sort of all kind of came out, and, and then eventually I worked myself up to being able to write a full book. Well, congratulations, and good for you for overcoming those obstacles, and I'm sure that serves as a bit of an inspiration to others that uh, that suffer as well. So, And I know that you do some advocacy work for autism, too, so um, thank you for doing that, and thank you for your hard work. Oh yeah, of course. I, 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 I want people to realize that, um, you know, I, I was told when I was young I would never be able to do anything like I'm doing now, and I've been on uh, the radio for years, and I've written books and I've done all this. I'm, you know, I'm getting close to sixty, so it, uh, um, it took my whole life to get there, but it can be done. A very, very interesting conversation underway with our guest, Alan Warren. Again, his website is alanrwarren.com. Alan, I know that's uh, your kind of your personal website. Your books are all there. You also have houseofmysteryradio.com. What's that one about? Oh, that that's kind of a... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm on the radio. I do five days a week and uh, on NBC KCAA in Los Angeles, and that's at 9 p.m. Pacific, and it's a one-hour show, and I talk to... Uh, people involved in crime, um, and it can be um, people that are lawyers, or it could be a, um, a police officer right through to uh, an author or a movie creator, So, and we talk about uh, how they get into it and what, what attracts them to it and how they do their, their work. So that's what that is. And that's, and the site just kind of gives you um, a lot of the old shows. We put them up there now, uh, so now the new day of podcast, you know. Yeah, I I opened the show talking a little bit about true crime and our fascination with it. Um, I've seen on Netflix things like Making a Murderer, The Staircase, um, the I'm trying to remember the trial of uh, Gabriel Hernandez. I can't remember exactly, but th- these these true crime miniseries or mini documentaries um, are popping up all over the place. Do you think these are helping draw attention? To some of what's going on in society, do you think it's an exploitation that we could do without? Combination of both. Mm-hmm. I think it's getting out of hand, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, that's you know that, that's what happens. You know, um, too many um, people take it as a business and turn it into that, and it's not necessarily there for the right reason. So, uh, and it's unfortunate. But you know, you probably saw that in the paranormal world. Oh, sure. uh, you know, in the last ten years before, <laughs> it was it was it was uh, kind of more underground, and it was sort of being done the way I think it should have been, and then it just exploded, and it, I think it gets out of control. Yeah, right? yeah. You know? 
Absolutely no question about that. Um, and for, for example, when I really enjoyed making a murder, and then after I watched that uh, 10 part documentary series, I went and actually did a little bit of research on the case. And I realized that the documentarians left a lot of information out of it that would have probably altered the way you perceived what was going on there. Yeah, it's unfortunate, you know, and this, and I'm not blaming them. Actually, I, I've met them and talked to them about it and, and I don't blame them for it, but they, they, they sort of played one side. Right. And, uh, and, and it's not just totally their fault because, uh, to, you know, the prosecutor and that wanted no part of it. So they didn't share anything on their side. So it was kind of a a combination of the both, which um, that was that was unfortunate because um, it would have been a better showing. Um, but you see, and that's where we get into this conspiracy and we start getting into, uh, you know, cults again, because uh, look at how many people think um, they know what really happened, you right. know, and they right. have all these ideas and theories. And I think that's all great, but most of them have never left their house. They haven't been there. I think the biggest problem with true crime right now is uh, all of the uh, crime things, shows and podcasts and things out there that um, do it all from their house and do it all from the Internet. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, there's a big difference, you know, when you talk to someone that's been in the field and you talk to someone that was actually at the trial and was actually or is, is, is a victim of the family, when you go do research of a book and you talk to all angles, it's so important. It makes such a difference from what you just see on the news or just see in a paper or go online. And, and, then, and you can't, plus, you can't really challenge a lot of your sources online. So um, I, I think there's a lot of things being missed, and, um, and people are quick to judge. And sometimes you get to the inside of a story and then you realize, oh, boy, I wonder why that, you know, because that making a murder is a perfect example because I would have, after seeing it, I was more on the side of, yeah, these guys probably didn't do it. It's innocent. They got railroaded. But but (laughs) when you start seeing the real stuff that went on in the trial and all the things that wasn't shown in there, plus the documentarians, as they call it, actually clipped out parts of of it so that you wouldn't see it. They actually covered up things. So if if you're looking at things from a totally non-biased point of view, just fact, you'd be like, "Wow, you know, uh, this isn't what we this isn't what we think it is." I think you we know? have yeah, I think so, we have to go into those programs remembering just like we did in the paranormal world. In many cases, you have to remember it's entertainment. This is TV, folks. This is not this is not actually yeah. a trial unfolding in front of you. This is TV. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because, you know, um, after I got into the business and I was in actually going out and doing books and stuff, research, and then you come back and shows things that I used to like, like the old, um, oh, geez, back, you know, in the 80s, you know, American crime, you know, the different ones on A&E of the mm-hmm. old days. And, mm-hmm. and I thought, wow, these, these are great shows. And then you watch them now and you realize there's, they were doing the same thing. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, it's just like Dateline stuff. I mean, it's all great. I know a lot of these people that do them, and it's all good. But they're remember, they are telling a story, and they're telling it in, in one way. Um, but you do need more than one side of a story to get a, to get a full picture of what happened, because it's just like your own personal life, you know. Uh, there's, there's, if, if I talk to a couple of people that really dislike you and a couple of people that totally love you i'm going to get two, two totally different stories right about 
who you are. And they're probably both true from their own points of view. So if I choose one that, that dislikes you, I can make you sound like a terrible person. And then if you're up for some sort of crime, people watching what I, what I do will say, yeah, he's, he's a terrible man. Right. He did it. He did it. You know, and that's kind of the problem. And and that's that's the unfortunate and 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 again it gets into cults and conspiracies because you hear one side or you see one piece on something, and you just sort of take it that way, you know, and you kind of go, yeah, you know, and it's it, but the thing is, there's more to it. You can't just jump on it. And people, but people love to hate right now. So yeah, <laughs> it's true. When we go, when we you know. start talking about uh, cults and doomsday cults in particular, as it relates to your book, you know, we look at leaders like Charles Manson. We, his name keeps coming up for obvious reasons. Jim Jones, another one. What is the common denominator with people like that? Is it all charisma? Is that what the the fuel is that that allows them to end up where they end up with these people? Well, that's a really good um, attraction for people. You know, like with both Jim Jones and Charles Manson, they both had the way of, they, you know, and, and when you talk to people that were involved with them, like Diane Lake, Snake, you know, who was involved yep. with Manson, uh, you know, they, they tell you how he, he just focused in on you. He looked at you eyes to eyes. He told you how beautiful you were and everything you say and do is wonderful and you are love and you're, you know, and he give them, like, like, they would tell me a hundred percent. There was no distraction. That this this leader was focused on them. Everything they you know that they were just ultimate people. So it made them feel good. And you got to remember, like in each case, like I said, they sort of have an uh, a type of a character that they're looking for. In Manson's case, he loved the younger girls, like fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, that were runaways that had. Um, you know, they had no place to go. They didn't feel loved right. for whatever reason. And so, so he was, he was there telling them how beautiful they were and how gorgeous, you know, and everything they, you know, the, so that's really the way of getting someone in. And, and even Jim Jones, Jim Jones was like adopting black children and, and, and preaching love and we're all the same and commune, you know, he, he was the first major sort of religious movement that took in gays and took in uh, minorities without a, even blinking the eye. You know, he, you know, he opened up. He would, and this, this is going to sound a little bit. I'm not trying to be, you know, insensitive, but he would actually embrace. This is the time, you know, in the '60s and the '70s when you have the race riots going yeah. on, and and to be gay is still illegal. You still go to, you can go to jail for it. And he would embrace them and touch them, and you know, kind of like the old princes die would would touch common people. It was just a shock, and 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 so he had this this way of of connecting, and and that's really how you draw people in, and um, that that's the unfortunate thing because then then you get sort of get indoctrinated, you know. In those cases, you know, you give up everything you own, you know. You, if you have a house, car, money, it all goes to the to the group and you end up living in a commune. And so you become more trapped. I'm going to admit that I'm probably a little less educated in some of this stuff that I would, than I would like to be. However, with Charles Manson, you mentioned runaways, obviously a natural place 
uh, for someone who uh, is trying to escape something from home. There's a giant hole in their lives. It seems like it would be rather not necessarily easy, but certainly easier for someone like Charles Manson to fill that void and create a follower. But it wasn't just runaways that he was attracting either, was it? No, no, he 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 would get more than that. But that was that was an easy like the one of the biggest things, and I point this out in this book that people don't realize that in the sixties, he you know when he was in jail and he he got out for just small offenses and he was hanging in San Francisco. He was right across the street from a um, uh, Haight Asbury uh, free clinic, and um, he was there every day because. So many of his girls and girlfriends had to get treated for sexual, you know, STDs and stuff, and it was all free. And so he met a lot of people there. This is the same clinic that was um, giving, um, you know, LSD to people that were alcoholics because it was it was an experimental drug back then. So they they considered it to be something that was helping uh, people to recover from alcoholism. You know, which is uh, silly when you look back at it, but at the time they thought it was good, and 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 there's a big actually a conspiracy, but I can see why because one of the doctors there actually worked on the MK Ultra program, and so there's a thing of like this is where Charles Matson learned how influential LSD was on his uh, followers. So he if he had someone that challenged him and that he felt was really a threat to him in a sense, and even men that did that, he would get them, um, he would get with them and get them on LSD. Then he would tell them a story, and he realized how he could turn them. And um, and that's all, that's all fairly, that's all true information. Um, you know, there's the conspiracy of people saying, well, you know, they were, they were using him or he was, he was trained by the CIA to do this and all that. I, I, I sort of don't really see that and I don't see any evidence, but he certainly did use LSD as one of his tools and he realized how much influence he could have over people by using it. When we look at, uh, Charles Manson's following, and it's one thing to get give people a place where they can feel loved, welcome, um, welcomed, and have a bed and, and maybe some food, whatever whatever it happens to be to fill some voids. It's another thing to create such de- blind devotion that you can tell a few of these members to go into a stranger's home and commit commit unbelievably savage acts of murder. How does that? process evolve well that's pretty complicated but i'll tell you in one in in a basic description they get so involved and so enamored the biggest thing is there's a point where the first big changeover for one of the the followers is when they start to believe that who their leader is whether it's charles matson or or jim jones or you know the heaven's gate guy or david koresh they start. They believe that they are the either the prophet, or the son of God, or, or some religious person, and so they believe they're acting on their God's will. They're doing what they're told to do by God, and it's not really any different than someone that's into um, Islam or into Christianity or, or or any any religion. Once they become so devoted to that person 
then nothing's out of out of out of bounds, out of reach. It's just all it becomes natural, and that that's a, that's a normal progression of this. If they stay in long enough, um, that's all that matters is is their is their um, you know their prophet, their leader, their whatever you want to call them. And some of those followers remained loyal to Charles Manson right up until his death, didn't they not? Yeah, you know, and that's a, that's another point, you know, because then it gets to a, uh, so that person starts to follow them no matter what. And, you know, it doesn't matter if Charles Manson, what he steal cars and drugs and, and then start killing people. It's, a, you know, he's, he's God, he's everything. It's, it's, we're supposed to do this. This is, it's written, you know. And then there's to a point where they get so indoctrinated that even if Charles Manson is proven to be someone bad or the leader, whoever it is, is proven that they're terrible, it doesn't matter. Because they, you know, interesting when they talk about the Branch Davidians and, and people I talk to that are um, still part of the Davidians, even after all said and done, yeah. and they're, they're actually waiting for David Koresh to return to the earth mm. because they think he's God. Wow. I mean, I mean, so, you know, even when I, I was on coast to coast there in March, and, and we had caller call in, and, and even Richard Seward asked him, he said, well, do you believe that, you know, David Koresh is coming back? And he's like, oh, um, yeah, I, I don't want to answer that. You know, it's and people I talk to, they believe that uh, we he sacrificed his life like Jesus in the same sort of, you know, mm-hmm. thing, and he's coming back. And they're waiting for him to come back. There's still people right now, and that's with all of these. So, you know, it becomes, a, that's the next step, is when they, not only do they follow everything the leader says, but even after the leader's dead and gone or something's passed, they still follow what the teachings were. So they get even further indoctrinated than what the original cult leader wanted them to be. It's just, it's, it's, it's almost crazy, but... Yet we see it, and, and it happens, I wouldn't say it happens every day, but it certainly happens enough that you have to look at uh, at society and wonder how this is a byproduct of it. Um, bef- before we move on from, from Charles Manson, the pop culture component of what Manson did, especially coming out of a very turbulent time in American history, that that seems to have longevity that many of these others don't. What's unique about this one? I think I think more because of um, how many movements were happening at the time. You know, when you look at the, what was going on in the 60s and uh, the revolution, so to speak, the revolution was on the left, and it was all about rights and, and love and peace and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think just, just as the Church of Satan came out with the same thing in the in 60s in the same area, I think there's a real um, attraction and it just stays with us because uh, Charles Manson was was an amazing character to, uh, to be able to um, to play people, and even the world, even the way he played to the press, even when he did interviews, he scared people just watching, just that were watching him on television. You know, uh, it's it's almost like what you create, the image you create, the Wizard of Oz. You know, the the all great wizard, and everybody's everybody's on edge around that person and i think he just sort of had that that way and and the unfortunate thing is young people are always sort of um each generation that comes up 
tends to be more, I don't know, more open to that sort of suggestion. Because at that time, you have nothing. And you, you know, when you were young and you looked at the older people in, in your lives, you thought a lot of things they did were crazy. You know, the structure and right. the jobs and everything. You know what I mean? And, and it yeah. keeps on going on. That's, that doesn't going to change. And so they're open to something different. And so, you know, the music is different for each generation. And then, you know, the, but it's just, it's just, a, but it's not really. It's just, um, you know, it's just one of those things. And it, he's attractive to young people. I want to try to make a comparison here, and, and forgive me if my language doesn't do this justice, but from what I know of Charles Manson, obviously most of these uh, cult leaders that we're talking about were in some fashion madmen. Um, Charles Manson uh, was was particularly, um, yeah, I'm not sure how to even put this, was there a mental illness component with Charles Manson, and I want to compare it to what I know about Jim Jones, who really seemed to de- descend into some mental illness toward the end of his life. Yeah, they had they had different directions. They both started out with the same sort of peace, love, and communal idea, and were all the same and kumbaya and that stuff, right? So that's right. all there. Right. But J- Jim Jones um, had a um, a real paranoia. And a real fear um, from even when he was in Indiana and he adopted his first black child. Uh, you know, and this back then, there were stores that wouldn't serve him because of that. His wife couldn't get groceries at certain stores. That's how bad it was. See, people don't realize what the world was like in the 60s. Yeah. And, and things like that happened. And, and he, he, he had... Um, threats on his life, and he had uh, people burning his property. So he got really on edge. He started hiring bodyguards, and that was all before the whole San Francisco thing. So um, so when you have that element, and then he started using drugs on top of it. So you have the element of someone that's paranoid, using drugs, has bodyguards, has people threatening him. Then he becomes huge, <laughs> blows up in California, and becomes like... Uh, this this rock star, you know, the president's wife's meeting with him, like he's getting all these things now. Right. He becomes so the combination of that, I think, makes someone feel invincible, and so they start demanding what they want, and um, you know the the change starts to you know starts to happen, and they start losing control. They start believing in what they say, um, and and Charles Charles Manson was didn't have that same direction. He had the same start. But I think there, it's an interesting thought. I think Charles Manson felt very um, how do you, de- degraded. He, thought, he was very, um, you know, he got in with the Beach Boys and that whole thing and Terry Melcher and all that. And, then, and, and he never got the rock star that he wanted. And I think he was slighted. And, and um, I think it was revenge. I think he he turned this into a personal revenge. Um, you know the whole thing about uh, the Beatles and and uh, the White Album and all that sort of stuff and and uh, and all the different things that he put together, Helter Skelter and stuff. That was just part of his cult work, but I don't think he necessarily believed a lot of that stuff, and even the prosecutor at the time didn't. But it was something to sell 
to the jury, right? Because he had to, he had to put him away. But there's so much more to that story. It's not you know it's not a coincidence that you know the the La Biancas were were right beside the house of 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 where he was going to uh, get even with a, a drug dealer that screwed him out of some money, and they'd already moved. And it's not a coincidence. You know, Terry Meltzer lived in where. Uh, Sharon Tate was, and then he just moved out, and she moved in. Right. I mean that that those things. I, you know, I don't believe that they're accidents. These are. He was going there with an intention of revenge, and you know, again, drugs, and he was a little off, and and whatever else, and things just happen, and they, you know, and plus he wasn't there. You know, he would tell them what to do. So there's so much more to that in the Manson case than there is in, the, say, Jim Jones. Because Jim Jones was following his, it were going to be a communist group all the way to the end, even even in Guyana, and he even wanted to send all of his money to Russia, and yeah. Yeah, so he didn't change that. He just become very insulated and insecure, and had to have his own bodyguards. And when it started losing control, it's like, well, it's the old, I'm going to kill everyone. And I want to go through the Jim Jones story. I find this one to be, um, as they all are, rather fascinating. But the fact that it can end with nearly a thousand people committing suicide on the orders of uh, one person is pretty remarkable. Alan, walk us through how the this path started and Jim Jones ultimately gave that uh, directive on that day, which, if you remember the pictures, is just a sea of of people in color. I, it, that's the thing that stands out to me when you see pictures of that scene. It's just people lying on the ground with colorful clothes, and there's nearly a thousand of them there. How do, how can this happen? Yeah, that was a... And it's crazy because uh, I included this. You, you're right. There's a lot of people that don't know Jim Jones or didn't know what happened. I was surprised even when I was doing a signing, and it seemed like everybody that's in their 20s goes, well, who's Jim Jones? Right. It's like wow, you, you you know. So it's but that was 1978. So time flies. Um, but he, he Jim Jones started in Indiana, and his his uh, father was a Pentecostal um, preacher, and he was really into that speaking in tongues and all that. And he uh, and he just loved it. He's very curious about it, and he was very curious about death. You know, he used to uh, go out in the woods and, and and set up a little stand, and he would preach to nobody. He would just be preaching in the woods, and people would, had caught him. He had also been doing uh, funerals for different animals that have died and stuff. And, and uh, so he, he was just enamored with that whole lifestyle, and eventually he became uh, um, a minister or a priest, and then he started his... Um, people's temple and it changed you know entities a few times and now this is kind of the the where something was just kind of a little bit crazy he um he thought he was able to fly as a kid he thought he was uh had the power and so he jumped off his roof and ended up just breaking some bones and stuff but he had this um, this thing that he thought he was um, here because of God, and he had some sort of special power, and um, and that's sort of where it all began. And um, he also thought that um, the world was going to end, and that they were going to be dropping bombs on the United States. 
And so that was the reason he moved to California, because he wanted to go to a place where they would be safe. And so off to California he went, and he became a very popular uh, social minister of the People's Temple. He had uh, Jane Fonda. He had all sorts of stars and politicians that were um, going to his church and talking about him, and and uh, he became very popular. And in fact, um, uh, so popular in San Francisco, I think he had like 16,000 uh, followers that could go around, he would bust them around and vote in whoever he wanted. So uh, the mayor and uh, quite a few people on council uh, were very, very, you know, rubbing elbows with him. He became very popular, and uh, and uh, that's kind of uh, where his highlight was. Um, but again, with his paranoia and his fear and his drug use, he uh, wanted to uh, get out of the country, and there was there was some newspaper articles and some magazines that were starting to have people that had left the temple and sort of said bad things about him, and and he was starting to feel a little bit shaky and paranoid. So he went down to uh, Guyana, and uh, now the reason he chose that country was because it was the only English-speaking communist country that also didn't have any extradition with the U.S. So he felt like he would uh, be out of the control of America. Right. And so so he found he found a, a good location, started Jonestown, uh, brought in a couple hundred people. They started building it, and eventually he had a thousand people there. And uh, they were supposed to be living well and happy, and everything was good. But there was a few, there was a few couples that were followers of his, and they had broke up. And uh, in two cases, both the mothers stayed back in the U.S., and the father went to Jonestown and brought their, their children. And so the, the uh, mothers in both cases decided to uh, they wanted their, their children back. Uh, but the U.S. didn't have any, you know, sort of working relationships, so they, were, they weren't able to do it. But that caused a big rift. And... Um, so then um, the U.S., uh, one of the uh, San Mateo congressmen and a team of uh, reporters decided to go and, and check out uh, uh, Jonestown and check out the kids and see if everybody was okay and, uh, and see if any of those stories were true that was kind of going around. And uh, so that's when they uh, flew there and uh, check out the temple and... Uh, it looked really good the first day, but I guess on the second day they started getting some letters, uh, secret notes from people that were in there saying that they wanted to get out and uh, to go back to the U.S. And so that was kind of um, the beginning of the end, um, because once the uh, once that was brought to Jim Jones' attention by one of the reporters, he decided that he had to stop this. So. Um, he actually uh, killed, uh, uh, had had uh, the senator, a few reporters, and quite a few different followers that were trying to leave. They were all shot at the airport, and there was a few of them that survived it. And uh, back in the in the temple itself, um, he told them all to um, that they had to uh, commit a revolutionary suicide. And so he gave them a flavor aid, which was like Kool Aid. It was an off-brand. 
and uh, poisoned them. And uh, the people that wouldn't drink it, he had them shot. And so uh, there ended up being 912 uh, bodies uh, that were eventually discovered at the time. And uh, so that's kind of that's kind of the base of the story. He himself, uh, there's different stories. He either shot himself or had someone shoot him. I've heard I've heard from different people, and one of the survivors even. And I I don't know. I think he shot himself, but I don't know which is. I don't know if we have exact proof on that. I think there were about a half a dozen people that survived it, and I've seen a few documentaries where they discuss the ordeal. It is an unbelievable um, thing, and the fact. Uh, yeah, and the, I'm sorry. I was going to say, and the yeah. worst thing is, like the people. There's two that I talked to, and one I even did in an interview on the radio. And and the thing is, you know, when they come back to the states, they were shunned. Um, they had a terrible return, and they ended up on the street doing drugs, prostitution had a terrible, terrible, uh, a big part of their life coming back from that because they were so, they were like the scarlet letter, you know, nobody wanted anything to do with them. And, and there's the old, and, and we see this today, you know, someone that's been in a cult and they come out of it, uh, others treat them really badly, you know. Oh, you know, they think they won't, they won't, they never get close to you because they think there's something wrong with you. Yeah. So uh, people get discarded. And and it was it was a really bad situation for the people that did return. You know, prior to the mass suicide, which I, I think you can argue whether it was a suicide or a murder, and it was a little of both, maybe. Um, yeah. Obviously, there was an element of fear among the people who were members, particularly those who were trying to get out of there, or they wouldn't have felt the need to secretly slip notes to the U.S. politician. They would have just said openly, "We want to leave," and they couldn't, could they? No. Yeah, they, there's no way, you know, and where they were located in Guyana, there, there, it was a long way to the closest town. And, and they were set up and they were all, it was just a really, um, I think people don't realize how uh, isolated they become when they join these groups. And so, uh, you know, there was a certain amount of isolation in California when they were in their commune. But not as not as much as when they take you away, and that's kind of the direction that these cult leaders will take their followers. You know, it's it's where it's an open come and go, no problem to all of a sudden a commune, and then a commune outside of a uh, of the country, and they had no um, no way of getting back. And in fact, when the people went to Guyana, they had to surrender all their documents, right? So they they had no no ID, they had right. nothing, and they had no money. They had no phones. They had nothing. So all of a sudden, you're in a commune, and you're told to work, and you work seven days a week. I, I hear the hours were hard. They ate nothing but rice, <laughs> and and uh, it was it was not it was a slave sort of labor. These people were building this thing for Jim Jones and really getting nothing out of it. And I think that um, some people didn't take to that, of course, and they wanted to leave. They wanted their freedom, and. Um, they couldn't get out. Some people say, and I can't remember if this was the prevailing theory, that Jones used to have these, uh, I guess, dry runs, practice runs of this quote-unquote suicide, um, where there was obviously no poison in the uh, in the drink, and that many at that time thought that this, this was just another one of those practice runs, not realizing that 
the poison had actually been put into the drink. Do we know if that's true? Yeah, no, and it's it is true and it's not true. What happened was he used to um, do those dry runs. They weren't really. What they were was he was testing the loyalty of people. So he didn't do it with all of his followers. He would have a group of people of his followers in a room, serve them wine, and then after everybody drank the wine and talked, he would tell everybody they would be dead in 45 minutes, that uh, this was God's wish. And so he wanted to see the reaction of his followers, and he always chose people for a particular reason. So it was more of a test. Um, when you get to Jonestown, no, that was not what happened. Uh, Jonestown, um, there's all the recordings. He was speaking over the loudspeaker. He was taking his meth. <laughs> and yeah. he was getting higher and higher and telling everybody that they're revolutionary suicide and we have to do this and this is this is so everybody knew this was the end. They just did you know, but the thing is he told his followers there that they wouldn't feel a thing. They would drink this and everybody you're just gonna fall asleep and then you'll wake up in heaven, right? You know, that sort of thing. And so a lot believed him and some didn't. The the, the problem what the reaction was was he told he he told the parents have your kids drink first yeah and so so what happened was they were giving their kids this this flavor aid and then their kids would go into convulsions and foaming and twitching and and go in terrible pain and that scared the parents because they believed that it was just like you drink this you go to sleep and you know and we'll wake up in heaven type thing so that's when some of them would scream and say no and then so he had them shot and some of them he forced them to drink it so that's why you see a lot of the parents that were shot and killed laying on top of the kids even when they first flew over they they thought they were they were estimating 200 dead and then when they got down on the ground and they started lifting the bodies, they would see that they're three and four high because the kids were, were laying below them that had died earlier. So they had no idea that it ended up being over 900. So, so no, he this intention, you know, right from the get-go, right after he shot Senator or Congressman Ryan and the team, um, he was announcing, this is it, we're, you know, this is about love and, you know, don't you know, that stuff and don't be scared and stuff like that. So um, no, they, they all knew. Um, um, before, before I ask the next question, there have been many, uh, I, I guess you would call them either documentaries or biopics on the Jonestown massacre. Is there one that you particularly think stays true to the story that you would recommend people to uh, watch? I'll tell you the best, the best book on, on that in detail would be Jeff Gwynn's book. Uh, no, nobody touches it. Mm-hmm. Nobody comes close. And he was in one documentary for, I believe, it's Sundance. And nobody touches that. He was, he was, he was down there. He, 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 he's probably one of the best investigative journalists I've ever, ever come across in my life. And uh, he's written a couple of books like that. And his, his one on the Jonestown and that documentary, that nothing comes close. He has details, and te- and he tells you the way it really was. You can hear um, he has all the evidence, and he he goes from Jones's childhood in detail right up until the end. And uh, it, it, because too many other books with the Jonestown in particular have too many conspiracies, yeah. you know, yeah. and it throws it. You know, I've heard you know God. There's all that stuff about 
you know, he was a communist, which he had communist ideas, but they had this idea that him and Harvey Milk and 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 it was a conspiracy and all. It's just it's just you start when you start getting to that, it gets crazy, you know. Obviously, one of the one of the results of that horrific event was the phrase uh, "drink the Kool Aid," which is commonly used now to mean blind devotion to something. But apart from that, when we look at Manson's uh, cult and his and the and the things he did, uh, the horrific things he did, and we look at Jonestown, we look at others. Have we learned anything from any of this as society? Can we learn anything no. from any of this? Well, I mean, I, I I would hope that we do, and I think that in a small percentage we do. But it's like anything else. We, you know, the new generation comes along. The world changes every single day because yeah. there's a whole pile of new lives, and there's people that have passed, and so it just changes every single day. It's and and if you've been alive long enough to know. Um, we have the same things that we go through over and over again, and uh, uh, we we can't learn the lesson because the, um, up comes the next generation that has never heard of it. You know, they don't know it. Um, but I think in science-wise, we do learn a lot of why people do what they do, and I think overall it is getting better. But... Um, it's it's we still have a long way to go yeah. in the human race. I had somebody on the program, and I do, I'm sorry, I just don't remember the gentleman's name. He's written a book about his experience with the seven tribes, and was explaining um, that he felt very similar to maybe some of the people that were in the Jonestown situation, where they were trapped and they wanted to get out, and it was almost impossible to get out. There are there are. Um, some similar things going on all around us uh, as we sit here today. Oh, it's constant. It's constant. They just, it's you know the uh, it's the old thing. Uh, just the names change, but it's the same. It's the same scenario, and it's over and over. And it happens. This is something going on in every country. You know, I I put in here about Japan and and Canada and mm-hmm. Switzerland and France. Um, and this is this is kind of a you know we have to, we have too many people that are looking for something that feel very lost and again they 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 need the comfort and um it just it just um it's just there what, i don't know how how we're ever going to go over it what happens in a situation like we're facing today, we we are in unprecedented territory here with these lockdowns, these self quarantine, social distancing, whatever they're calling them now, and we're just told that for the most part we won't be able to leave our homes for another six weeks. Um, it, does this type of thing fuel um, maybe cult activity, maybe doomsday cult activity? Obviously, there are people that think this is the end of the world. Oh yeah. You know, and that's constant, and they're always looking for it. This is the this is the millennials nine eleven. You know, this is this is um, their challenge, and uh, you know, it's all of our challenge. But it's yeah. just it's something that will stick with them, and when they have children, they will bring them up with this in their mind. You know, just as each generation has something. Uh, it was our World War Two, right? For someone that's older. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing is, the, these. Uh, these terrible things that happen um, scare us. And in the U.S. in particular, 
people are on scared are on edge and more scared than they um they are anywhere else in the world and um that's a whole other <laughs> show <laughs> but uh, but there's a lot of people and they do things out of fear right like when you look at all the things that go around social media about you know this 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 coronavirus and and covid-19 and it's it's germ warfare and yeah. and and now you've got Alex Jones out there saying that the bubble wrap you know that uh um, the Chinese planted it in. So when every time you order from Amazon oh, wow. and you open up your package, that bubble wrap is all made in China and they planted the coronavirus in that. And it's like, well, you know, the thing is, uh, people believe that and they buy it with no no evidence. Just It's just a theory. And, and they're scared already. And when people are scared, and also, you know, in this particular case, too, it's just like a war where everything changes. You lose your social life. You lose your job. A lot of people lose their homes. Yeah. And and then they go to war, so to speak. And in this particular case, the people that are at war are, are the medical and the uh, people on the front lines there. So back in World War II, all the all the men went to war across the ocean, and, and, uh, and the ladies had to go in and build ammunition and you know but it, you know you had you had ration sugar and ration it's it, it's just this tragedy i don't think it's the end of the world i really don't i think it's just i think it's changing i think that uh, these viruses are going to become more frequent and we as a society are going to have to learn how to live around it live through it yeah. and to to live differently in order to move forward and um and it's hard because uh, North America spoiled. I mean, yeah. Just face it. I mean, we want our latte at Starbucks and we want our, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's you know, it's yeah. easy to get into it. I mean, I, I love, there's some great things we have in life. And, and I think that I hope that in general people realize how much we really do have. And start being more positive with each other. Then it, it, the negativity is just brutal, and and um, so we need to move forward and start thinking about well, look at how much good we have, and let's build off the good and just you know. But things like this will will force people to uh, to realize how much we can lose and how quickly we can lose it. The book is called Doomsday Cults, The Devil's Hostages. Alan, what do you want people to walk away with after they read it? How do you want them to, what messages do you want them to walk away with? The biggest, the biggest thing in this particular um, book was um, to not judge someone right away. Uh, like we, we were so quick to, you know, in true crime and cults and, and politicians and to people just to flip through to see a picture of someone on social media or saying something or doing something and so we hate them <laughs> you know this is that person's awful they're this or that and then the stories and all that i i want people to realize that it, it happens in these groups as well we, we isolate people and we we put them in a category and we shun them and then all of a sudden there's separation, and, and there's too much of that going on. It doesn't matter in what category. And I want people to realize, because that's why I included so many groups, and I kind of give briefings because I'm talking about how people get into it and um, how they get out of it. 
We're talking about escaping a cult. We're talking about indoctrination, recruitment, brainwashing uh, methods. Um, so there's it's great detail about it, and it, so it's not just all gore and bad stuff. It's kind of an an overview, and and how we how we get through it, and if we know someone that's involved or in something, uh, maybe it kind of help us work through it. And I mentioned the website a couple of times. Is that the best place to, best place to find the book if they want to buy? Oh yeah, and it's in it's in most big bookstores. It's it's a published book from a publisher, and uh, it's in most like Barnes and Nobles and and a lot of independents, and uh, of course Amazon. And but you got to be careful because they might have some Chinese bubble wrap. <laughs> so you don't. I was going to say it if you didn't. <laughs> So, yeah, so be careful on that. And then, of course, off the website itself, and, and it's Alan R. Warren. The reason there's an R in there, it's not that I'm, you know, snotty. It's just that there's an Alan Warren that has been writing books, and he's a foot doctor, <laughs> and he's been doing this for years. And so if you go to just Alan Warren, you'll get foot books. Well, it's funny you say that because I go by JV professionally because my name is James Johnson, and it doesn't get much more common than that. So no. <laughs> yeah. it's a yeah. it's I it's, it's that one. Yeah. sometimes a curse. Anyway, um, Alan, fantastic topic, great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Um, keep us informed as to what you've got coming up, your other work, because you do such great work, and we'd like to keep tabs on it and have you back on at some point. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.